Now, broadly speaking, the parasha of Truma, the parasha of Truma is about clay HaMishkan. The vessels that were built in order to be used in the Mishkan. The primary vessels, of course, are the Aron, the Shulchan, the Venorah. Right, the Aron Kodesh, in which the Aseret uh, did roads were kept. The Shulchan, we spoke about last week, that had the bread on it. In English they call it showbread, S-H-E-W, kind of maintaining some old English style or other. You know, King James is still the only translation of the Bible into English. All the other translations are just make-believe, except Kaplan. Kaplan is new. Aryeh Kaplan's translation, he did it himself. But all the other translations that we use, JPS and Korean and all of that, they're all uh, King James. All of them are King James. Uh, I hope that doesn't make you nervous. <laughs> was what? That's called tradition. It's hard to do something, just do it. Uh, I've got a lot of people involved, also the King James translation. You know, a lot of people, some of them knew Hebrew, some of them knew Latin, some of them knew Greek. It was like a mishmash because the earlier translations were used by the King James people to make their new translation. In any event, that's neither here nor there. So in the parish of Truma, we mostly deal with the vessels that were built. And in, um, in the parish of Tetzaveh, the parish is primarily about Big Day Kuhuna, about the... Uh, they were complicated and, and special and in a certain way. Big day kuhuna. But the beginning of Parashat Titzavet, which is what concerns us tonight, the very beginning of Parashat Titzavet, is something different. It's something special. So let's look at the beginning of the Parashat Titzavet. You see, it says, Vatat Titzavet Yisrael, Vatat. Right, started off with a direct uh, 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 statement to Moshe Rabbeinu. HaKadosh Prophet says to Moshe Rabbeinu, Ata. Now that itself is not so common. He says, Ata, Tetzaveh et Bidei Yisrael. Okay, we'll see, all the Rishonim deal with the problem. And then, what is the Tzivui? Bikhu elecha shemen zayit zach katit lamaot. Shemen, oil, zayit, Olive oil. The other words we'll see in a minute are, tra- are explained by Rashi. But it's very fine olive oil and lima'or. Lima'or is the word or, right? There's the word lima'or in order to produce or, to make or, to become or. Uh, light, where with the light, of course, was in the menorah. Uh, how can you, uh, it's sort of like telling you what the menorah is there for which itself is not so obvious, uh, because, uh, or it's not clear to us, 
what this menorah was supposed to do. Because you know that the <coughs> that the menorah was lit every night, I think I've mentioned it before, and it burnt all night long until the morning. When the Kohen would come in and clean it up, clean up the place where the oil was put, put in new oil and wicks, etc. Now at night there was nobody in the Beit HaMikdash in the Mishkan. It wasn't as though they had a night kolel in the Beit HaMikdash. They did not. And so why the candles were lit at night until the morning where there was no one there to be able to, to benefit from them is uh, not obvious. The answer is not obvious. But this is the reality. The candles were lit they used olive <coughs> oil to light the candles, and uh, and it says lahalos ne'er tamid, ne'er tamid. And here Rashi will explain what the word tamid means, as we tried to do last last week. The second pasuk, the second pasuk is ba'ol mo'ed michutz la'parochet asharal ha'edut. Now the word edut uh, refers to the um, to Ruchota Edut, to the commandments, to the stones that were in the Aron. And the Parochet is the thing that separated the room of the Aron Kodesh from the room of the uh, <coughs> Menorah. So you remember, I, I told you that the words are Ulam, right? The big courtyard is called Ulam, then Heichal is the smaller uh, room, and Devir is the smallest room. So in the Devir there was the Edut, and the Edut was separated from the, shul, from the menorah by a paroche, by a curtain, right? Asher al ha'edut, yairochoto aron banav, me'er vadboka aron banav, aron and the sons will do it, whatever you do to the candelabrum, Me'erev ad boker lifnei Hashem lifnei Hashem. I mean, I mean, sounds good. Lifnei Hashem. Everything should be done lifnei Hashem. But what specifically it means here is not clear. Chukat olam ledoro tam. Chukat olam. It's a a regulation that is forever. All the generations they ate bnei Yisrael from bnei Yisrael. So that means what the Nei Yisrael continue to contribute all the time, I guess, is the oil. I mean, you don't have to build a new menorah every, every so often, but you do have to have new oil uh, for a variety of reasons. For a variety of reasons. So if I read the Pasuk again, So this is a special directive to Moshe Rabbeinu to tell the Nei Yisrael that they have to bring Olive oil. <coughs> that's what it, that's what it says. Now let's look at Rashi. Rashi says, "Vatatitzaveh Shmarim is a word that describes sediments. You know, like often uh, uh, the juice comes out of fruit, and then if you let it stand there, some of it will sediment out. There's another word in English that is used. For those who, for you who like English, you know, the English of English, leaves, leaves. You know that word? It's a good word for scrabble, I guess. 
leaves. Anyway, I just say it because it appears in some translations. So, Belishmarim, Kedosh Hashadinu, etc. So, the word Katit, you see the second Rashi, Hazaitim, you would smash up the olives in an olive smasher. But you don't crush them with rechaim. Rechaim was uh, stones, right? Millstones, okay. Right, because then you crush it too much. You can't distinguish the good, the best oil from the second best oil. So you don't do it that way. So there should be no sediment. And if you take out the first bit of oil, then you take the rest of the olives and put them back into the uh, into the millstones. Okay. So this is this is what uh, what the words mean. Zach pure katit lama The first squeezing of the olives produces the oil that you use in the in the menorah. Right, lahalot ner tamid madlik achidei shalavet olavi eleha lahalot. It was it's a strange verb. Lahalot ner, lahalot to to bring up a ner. I mean, what, what, what is that? So Rashi explains what Rashi explains. We will get into that now. Now the word tamid. I'm going to read the Rashi only because <coughs> it explains what we spoke about last week. So those of you who remember. He says, Even though the menorah was only lit at night, and only lit for the night, and wasn't lit at all during the day, it nevertheless is called tamid, because tamid means a systematically repeated action. That is tamid. He says, Kemosha, Olat tamid. Right, the same thing we said. We said, so I just didn't have it on the sheet last week. Say, not Ella B'yom B'yom, that the Olat Hamid, right, only is sacrificed day by day, but it's still called Hamid. Uh, when you make the Mincha, the Chavitin are cakes, are like little cakes that were made from flour, which is the Mincha offering. Uh, it says Tamid, they know Ella Machitaba, Boka Machitaba Arab, they made these cakes to be eaten along with, you know, when the, when the Korban Tamid was given, and part was eaten in the morning, part in the Ella of Tamid, Amur Belechem Apanim, Mishabat Shabbatu. But the word Tamid, when describing, used to describe the Lechem Apanim, which is what we said, we talked about last week, was is uh, according to Rashi, the Shabbat the Shabbat. That the, the bread was in the, in, on the table for an entire week. And then it was exchanged for new bread. And so there were, you could say that there was bread on the table all the time. It's a different kind of, a different kind of tummy. Okay. I'll script. Now let's look at the Rashbam. You see the Rashbam? <coughs> One. Rashban is next to the Rashi. You remember the Rashban was Rashi's grandson and the inheritor of Rashi's mantle. The reason I know that, or the reason I could say that, 
Because those places of the Talmud, those places of the Talmud that Rashi did not even, did not get to, did not finish, did not work out completely, were explained by the Rashbam. He inherited that job. Now, while it's probably true that neither the Rashi nor the Rashbam did it exclusively, I mean, it wasn't like Rashi just sat down someplace and wrote it up. But he had a lot of help. He had Talmudim. He had he actually uh, here in Israel today call it a mitzvah, right? You you got work for people. In those days, I don't think it was called a mitzvah, but Rashi did it. And the primary inheritor of Rashi's mantle was apparently the Rashbam, who wrote a different kind of commentary, but he had the same ideas that Rashi had. He was a Talmud of his grandfather's. <coughs> that, that's Rashi. So what does the Rashbam say? The Rashbam, uh, you have to say on Chumash, the Rashbam, I always have to remember, the Rashbam was a Talmud of his grandfather. And if you look at the beginning of the parish of Vayeshev and Bereshit, there's an introduction of the Rashbam to his own commentary. And there he says, I went to, I wanted to write this commentary to kind of flush out Rashi. <coughs> to write up things that Rashi forgot about or didn't include. So I went to my grandfather and I asked him, is it all right if I do this? Would it be considered insulting to you if I did it? So Rashi said, absolutely not. I encourage you to do it. And he created that phrase, because Rashi said, there are new things that happen all the time, new understandings, new explanations, and it's important that they get included and not excluded. And so the Rashbam wrote his commentary. What does he say here? Atatitzaveh, Lemalahu Omer, above, in the parasha of Truma, Daber B'nei Yisrael, Yikuli Truma, speak to B'nei Yisrael, and they shall take a truma, an offering for me. Because that pasuk, that pasuk above where it says, it says, it doesn't say, it doesn't say command them, it says speak to them. Because of the fundraising that Moshe Rabbeinu did for the Mishkan, was a one-time event. That was it. You know, it's like the, the, the raffle is going to be Rosh Chodesh Iyar. You want to get in on it? You have to buy a ticket for the raffle now. That's how it was with Moshe Rabbeinu raised the money for building the Mishkan. Avokan. Here, the Pasuk says, command them, because we're talking about a recurrent obligation. An obligation takes place, and then when you run out of the oil, you have to do it again. <coughs> and you have to feel the obligation is ongoing and endless. That's what, Rash, what the Rashbab uh, explains. Shinala Shom, Mephishikola Shom, Sava'ale Dorotu. There's the Rashbam. Wherever it says in the Torah, command, 
Mitzavot, they use that word, it means forever and ever and ever. It's like Tamit. Again and again and again. And this is also again and again and again uh, a kind of topic. V'cheidu omer v'tarat kohanim v'sufrei kikolashon sivui e'no ela miyad u'medorot and he says this is clearly stated in Chazal, in rabbinic literature that wherever it says sivui whoever that wherever that verb is used the verb litzavot it means forever it's like a mitzvah so it's not as though if Moshe Rabbeinu would have said part of the truma that you bring is, uh, is oil <coughs> so then they would have to do fundraising over again when they ran out of the oil they had to go find the oil uh, uh, again I mean this sets some light a different kind of light on Hanukkah on this, the oil of Hanukkah but we're not going to do that now Okay, if you turn the page, if you turn the page, it's printed the way it's printed. So we're going to look at Vayikra Perikav Dalit, Pazagal Bet Gibel Dalit. Vayikra Perikav Dalit, the parish is called Emor. In the parish of Emor, there are many dinim that are connected to Kohanim. What Kohanim must do, what they should avoid doing, right? <coughs> Uh, bereavement, Kohanim and bereavement, all of these things are covered in the parashat and more. Besides that, right, you know, we're in the parashat Titzaveh, right, that's the end of Shmot. And this is, Emor is in the middle of Vayikra. So what is the, what do the Pesukim say? They say, Vayidabay Hashem al-Moshe le-Mor Tzavet v'nei Yisrael v'yikruay lech Hashem v'zayitzach kapit l'mo'or la'alot ne'etamit. So this seems to be quite repetitive. I mean, it, we know this already. This was already done. Why is God saying to Moshe Rabbeinu, do it, when God has already told Moshe Rabbeinu to do it? Pasuk Gimel, Michutz LaParochet, Haidut Pa'ol Mo'ed, Yarochet O'Aron, Me'erbat Boker, V'zmei Hashem, Tamit, Chukato Lavador, I'm reading it like this, because it's the same as the Psukim we've already learned in the parish of Titzaveh. In the parish of Titzaveh. One more Pasuk. Allah menorah ha-tahorah yarochet ha-nerot l'fnei Hashem tamid. Okay. I mean, so here it says menorah ha-tahorah. Somebody has to tell us what that might mean. But basically, what the Psukim are saying is that Moshe Rabbeinu should command B'nai Yisrael about the oil. And that command has already been done for B'nai Yisrael in our parashah, the parashah of Titzaveh. <coughs> Whenever the Torah repeats things, it's a sign, at least for Chazal, it was always a sign that there's some kind of new interpretation that should be squeezed out of the material. So let's look at first at Rashi. Rashi says, Tzavet B'nai Yisrael, this is about the candles. Now you see these words? So Rashi 
like in one swoop has done away with the problem. Because he said that in the parasha of Titzavah, it doesn't include a command to bring the oil. But what does it say? When will Moshe Rabbeinu command B'nai Yisrael? When will Moshe Rabbeinu command B'nai Yisrael to bring the oil? I don't know. When they need it. When they need the oil. The parasha of Titzavah, nothing is built yet. Nothing is made. There's no Mishkan. Right? You remember how the end of the, of the book of Shemot goes. Tzuma Titzavah. Kalim Bigdekuna. Then the parish of Kititsa. <coughs> the parish of Kititsa is primarily known as the parish of the Eagle of the House. Right? So, like, if you, if you read the, the Torah in order, the Chuvantits are there kind of preempting the future. It's going to be that way. There'll be a Mishkan and there'll be Kalim. And then there's the Eagle of the House. Moshe Rabbeinu fighting for the continued existence of the Nei Yisrael and then the last two parashiyotim in the book of Shemot by Yakel Fukudei which are again uh, uh, a discussion or a description of building the Mishkan so, so Rashi says in Ayikra that when Hashem said to Moshe Rabbeinu <coughs> it wasn't the command it was what's going to be but when was the command to tell B'nai Yisrael to bring olive oil given to Moshe Rabbeinu to give to B'nai Yisrael? Here in the parasha of Amor. So what is, why was it that God said in the parasha of Titzavet? Because the Torah is explaining to us why there's a menorah. Because when, when, when in the parasha of Trumah, when the menorah is described, it doesn't say what the purpose of that menorah is. Even though Bidiyebet, it's certainly obvious to us that if you like candles and menorah, that's what the menorah is for, but you know that since the candles were lit at night <coughs> and burnt until the morning, it was far from obvious why you needed a menorah at all. So the parasha of Titzavet tells us why there was a menorah. That's the position of <coughs> that's the position of Rashi. That is the position of Rashi. Okay. Okay. Now we're up to up to the Ramban. You see the bottom of the page, the Ramban. Now the Ramban doesn't like Rashi. We know that the Ramban is not going to like Rashi. Because the Ramban had this fundamental disagreement with Rashi about order. And according to Rashi, according to Rashi, Ein Muqtam Muhaba Torah doesn't bother Rashi. How do I know that it doesn't bother Rashi? Because if you look through every case in Rashi where he says Ein Muqtam Muhaba Torah, which means that the, chron- the chronology is of no concern. We don't, the Torah doesn't write necessarily chronologically. Rashi never explains why it's not chronological. You would think, you would think that if the Torah wrote, okay, 
the Torah can do it. Rashi says the Torah can do it, but there should be a reason, shouldn't it? Isn't there a, a, a obviously, you would think the Torah would write something chronologically, and it would digress us from the chronology, there should be a reason. But Rashi doesn't tell us the reason. Because Rashi feels, Rashi seems to feel, well, it's like I, I always tell you that in the beginning of the of uh, Psachim, Adazvag on the Beth of Psachim, there is a reference to Ein Mukdam and Uchava Torah, because in the beginning of the, of the book of Bamidbar, beginning of Bamidbar, it says clearly that they're talking about Chodesh Hashemi, the Chodesh, uh, the Shana Hashemi, the second month of the second year. And Tarek where where the topic is Pesach Sheni, you know, all the people who were Tameh, on Pesach, couldn't bring the carbon Pesach, so there was, uh, there was this carbon, this Pesach Sheni, which somehow is rejuvenated naturally by the Hasidim, and the Litvaks can't put up with it, so they give in, you know, on all these kind of things. And so the people who eat matzahs, you know, matzahs on Pesach Sheni, which is a month after, after Pesach, that's what you do with your leftover matzahs. <coughs> so, so the Torah says, the beginning of Bamidbar is B'chodesh HaSheni. But the Peretet in Bamidbar must have been B'chodesh HaRishon because they came to Moshe Rabbeinu and they say, we're Tameh, we know we're not going to be able to give a Korban Pesach. What should we do? So they must have said that before Pesach, right? B'chodesh HaRishon. Okay, but the Torah doesn't tell us, but the Rashi doesn't tell us, the Gemara doesn't tell us why. Why the Torah is written in this way. So Rashi I guess feels that that if you find a, a disagreeable chronological point, it's not so important. It doesn't have to be explained. That's Rashi. The Ramban disagrees. And he says the only time you could say that the chronology is of no concern is when the Torah itself tells you that the chronology goes awry. Like uh, Pesach Sheni, it says the second month, and then it says the first month. Otherwise, you can't just introduce the principle of Ein Mukdam Muchavat as though it was a legitimate Parshanut principle. So Rashi, Rashi, uh, the Rabban, disagree on this point, on what Torah is, whether Torah has to follow that rule or not. So he says, the Ramban says, "So parashat mitzvah wrote the parashat lo el This is Rashi, right? Lashon Rashi with the third line, right? He says, The Ramban says the third line in the Ramban. Because the beginning of Trum of Titzaveh does not come after the Menorah in Truma. If it was there to explain what the menorah was doing, it should come right right after it. But it doesn't. Shaina Parashai Smucha, the Parashata Menorah. Ukvar Neymar, Vayal Hanerot Lufnei Hashem, Kasher Tziva Hashem et Moshe. This is already, uh, we know this already. That the, that the candles were already lit. Vinei HaMitzvah Vamaseh Nizkarim Benazim Kvar. Kvar meaning before the parasha of Emor, right? Vayikra is Emor. Uh, uh, Tetzaveh 
<coughs> the end of Shemot. V'hinei ha-mitzvah v'amaseh nizkirim v'nasim k'var. Aval, sorech ha-parasha ha-zot v'shnei t'varim. It says Rashi is entirely wrong. They, they already brought the oil and they lit the candles and so the question becomes according to the Ramban what do you need to psukim in Amor for? Why are they in the Torah at all if you know everything? So he says <coughs> so in the parish of Truma, the oil was donated in Tzavet. The oil was donated by the people who had oil. It's like everything else was donated. The wood was donated, people had wood, and the, the, the cloth was donated by the people who had cloth. The oil was donated by people who had oil. V'achshav kalashemen ahu. Now we ran out of that oil. The first donation of oil was finished. And now, so there has to be a new command to take more oil from B'nai Yisrael because the original oil that was given under the aegis of Truma, as you donate what you have, everybody donates what they have, that disappeared. So in theory, no one had to bring any oil. Nobody knew what to do. So you needed another, you needed another tzivui. You needed another tzivui. <coughs> okay. Uh, and then he goes on and he quotes uh, several other things that are uh, that are similar. So what's the difference? What is the difference between Rashi and the Ramban? What is the Rashi and the Ramban? The Ramban, the Ramban says that things are written in order. That's what the Ramban says. Things are written as they should be in the order that they should be written in. So Rashi, Rashi says that the parasha of, of Titzavah really should be eliminated. It really didn't exist. Because it's only there to explain to us what the menorah, what the menorah was for. <coughs> Here, Rashi says in the parasha of Emor, that's where the real Sivui where the real Sivui uh, comes. So Rashi has to do a kind of a surgical operation here and sort of cut out those Sukim in Titzaveh as being of primary importance and relegate them to some secondary com- commentary position. They're the commentary. <coughs> the Ramban says, no, that's not true. 
that you needed two commands for the oil. Because the first command to bring the oil was the general command of Truma, which was that everybody donates what they have. So the people who donated the oil donated the oil. But then after they finished, after they finished, there was no longer any need to donate the gold and the silver and the cloth and the oil. There was no specific command about that. And therefore, there had to be another command brought or, or given to B'nai Yisrael to, to, to bring the oil. So we see that, uh, that at least in the, for the earlier commentaries with the Rishonim, the idea that, uh, that these two parashiyot exist and that the oil was specifically considered uh, being of great importance is, um, uh, is there, like the Rashbam, Rashi, the Rashbam, and the Rambam. Those are the Beposhim that we, that we looked at. Now, the last commentary that I think we should, uh, we will benefit from is the Hamek Davar. You know, the Hamek Davar was the Rosh Yeshiva in the for many years and actually closed the yeshiva. He was the one who closed the yeshiva when it was uh, clear to him and to others that uh, the Russian government would not allow the yeshiva. I mean, it's like, it's like um, deja vu, you know, deja vu. <laughs> the Russian government would not allow the yeshiva to continue and produce, producing boors. And, in all, I mean, I guess, of course, everything is connected to anti-Semitism on one level or the other. But the, the Russian government was incited, supposedly, by the reformers who said that these were not institutes of higher learning, but they were institutes of higher ignorance. And there is a story there is a story that is told. It took the government a long time to do this because there's a story, I, I think I've told the story. There's a, they had a student, a Baal Tshuva, in Voloshin, who had one of these tricky memories and knew all of the books of Pushkin, Baal Peck. <laughs> and whenever the Russian guys would come to investigate these issues and say, oh yeah, we teach this, we teach that. And to prove it, they would wheel out this kid who would like then talk about Pushkin and quote lengthy paragraphs. And it took them a while before they understood that he was an exception and not the rule. But but the Nitzif, Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, was the son-in-law of the former Rosh Yeshiva of, uh, of the Lajit. And uh, he was the one, who, he was Rosh Yeshiva 40 years, and he uh, closed the Yeshiva. He closed the Yeshiva, he realized he would not be able to, would not be able to function as he wanted it to function, as, you know, as it should have functioned. And so he moved to Warsaw, where he eventually died. <coughs> Whoever's been to, to Warsaw, You've probably been to the uh, graveyard, and there's a an oil, we like to call it, a, like a, 
a tent that's made, of course, out of cement and stone, in which Rav Chaim Soloveitchik and the Mitzvah are buried together in the same place. So if anybody's looking for inspiration, you know, that's a good place to, to stop. So the Mitzvah, in the yeshiva, one of his, the things he instituted was that every morning after davening, he taught Chumash. This was radical because uh, no one, no one in any yeshiva, in fact, no one since that time ever taught Chumash in the yeshiva. Well, there are some exceptions. But, you know, in the mainstream Lithuanian yeshivas, they don't teach Chumash. And <coughs> that the people don't know the Chumash, I didn't say that. But there's no like, formal, but the Nitzvah did for years and years and years, and his teaching of Chumash in the yeshiva turned into a commentary on Chumash, which is called the Ha'anek Davar. And to, on which he wrote a commentary, right? He wrote, like, like a Jewish thing. He wrote the commentary in the Chumash, and then having done that, he wrote a commentary on his commentary. And the commentary, the commentary is printed with the commentary, <laughs> and it's called Harchev Davar. Like, more of the same. You know, like, let me really go at it. And the Harchev Davar is usually, it's, it's like a Sheyu, it's like a Sheer Kwali in the Yeshiva, you know, it, it brings together sources that you might think, you know, might wonder what possible connection could there be to what it is we are talking about, but he makes those, he makes those connections. He was, uh, he was quite a remarkable, uh, remarkable personality. Um, and uh, you know he lived through a lot of he was the, the, the primary teacher and the primary fundraiser <coughs> for the yeshiva which is uh, itself a remarkable thing so in any event he wrote he wrote this commentary which we're going to try to read some parts of I leave it with you if, you, if you'd like to like work on it a little more so look how he starts. He says, on the first page, page one and the second half of the page, right? Klau parasha zo This is a wondrous parasha. Levad l'shon v'atatitzaveh sheklar aduri shonim alzeh. Besides the problem of the word v'atatitzaveh, right, in the future, od ikar ha-peyush enkan nikoma betok maseh mishkan. He says, like, like, remember the Ramban? He said, he said, this, this doesn't really belong here. Rashi, Rashi says, doesn't really belong in Parashat Titzaveh. Certainly, it should have been included after the Menorah, the discussion of the Menorah in Parashat Truma. Gamlishon v'yikhu elecha. What do we bring to you? For Ramban Katav, he summarizes, she is here, she is here, that they should bring it, this is the Ramban in Tetzaveh, which we did not learn, but we see it here. He is here, she is here, she is here, the Ramban says, maybe Moshe Rabbeinu had a special role here. Since the oil has to be pure, 
he was the one who checked to see if the oil that they brought was, was really pure. Uh, so he says, <laughs> The fourth line. How come this was suddenly a big problem? Anybody can check if the oil is, uh, is pure. And he says, what's going to happen after Moshe Abedi dies? I mean, he's not going to be there to check if the oil is pure or not. I mean, what's the big deal? What is the big deal? Uh, and then the the Hamek Dover goes through a very long explanation about the place of Moshe Rabbeinu and, 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 and he I'll try to summarize at least one idea that comes out of the uh, <coughs> the words of the deceiver, I again suggest that anybody who has the energy should try to go through it. The deceiver said that, that there are two grand notions in the Mishkan. There are two things that, that are grand, but they also seem to be contradictory. One is that the Aserita de Brot the luchot that were received by Moshe Rabbeinu and Har Sinai, which we can say represents the Torah Shabbat and the interpretations of the Torah Shabbat which I have many times tried to explain, it's not Torah Shabbat Peh. In other words, if the Torah Shabbat says, right, Totafot, Moshe Rabbeinu is going to teach B'nai Yisrael It's inconceivable. There isn't one Nudnik in the class who says, what is that? There's no reason to imagine that anybody knew what Totafot was. Totafot is probably, it's certainly not a Hebrew word, and may not even be a Semitic word. <coughs> so I say to you, some Nudnik said to Moshe Rabbeinu during the class, what Atotafot, and Moshe Rabbeinu had to show him, show him what they were. And that's called Torah Shebechtav. Because if you can't explain what Torah, what Totafot means to the student, then you don't have anything. There's no text. A text which is incomprehensible doesn't exist. You can't say God gave the Israel the text. It's like God giving the Israel the Torah written in Chinese. So was it given? No. I mean, you can say that. I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, arguing here. I'm just saying you can say it was not given. So Moshe Rabbeinu had to explain the text of the Torah. <coughs> to B'nai Israel, otherwise they can't have been recipients of that Torah. They cannot have been recipients of that Torah. So when I say that Moshe Rabbeinu received the Torah of Har Sinai, one can argue 
that Moshe Rabbeinu received the Torah Shabbat, right? Whatever it was, one day or 38 years, I mean, it doesn't matter. But he also received the direct interpretation, the explanation of those words in the Torah, which he then passed on to B'nai Yisrael as he taught them the Torah. So even things that seem to us to be very uh, halachic, like I'd say, the Torah says, the Sukkot now Sukkah has a special definition, as we all know. It has tach on it, it has walls around it, it has a size. There are places you can put a sukkah, and places you can't put a sukkah. <coughs> All of that was part of what we call Torah Shebichtav. That's the written Torah, because that's the comprehensible written Torah. So when somebody says that Moshe Rabbeinu re- uh, received the Torah Shebichtav and the Torah Shebichtav on Har Sinai, that may be what he means, what I say. But anyway, that's what I mean. That's all right for me. I don't know if it's all right for you. But you understand what I'm trying to say. That, the, that whatever it is, it has to be comprehensible. It has to be comprehensible. If it's not comprehensible, it's not there. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. It's like giving, you know... Uh, I mean, everybody knows. We all have that experience. You know, things that you first saw that you couldn't understand at all, and then you did understand them. And then when you looked at it again... Right, whether it was an equation in mathematics or it was, uh, uh, you know, a difficult line <coughs> in short service. So after you understand it, that understanding gets put back into it. You never look at it again. Like today, when we read the Pasuk, everybody like, can picture it, somebody where it's filled. I'm not referring to the girls in the uh, SAR. <laughs> so you see, you, you could you could picture Totafot. Everybody knows what Totafot is, but before somebody told you what it meant, you didn't know what it meant. Couldn't imagine what it is. Couldn't imagine what it is because you had no way of connecting it to anything. Didn't exist. It was non-existent. But then once it's explained to you, every time you read the Torah Shabbat, you know it. You don't start from zero over again. You, you know what it says. So, the Aron HaKodesh in the Beit HaMikdash was the thing that represented the immutability of the Torah. It was what it was, and it could be contained in a box. It, it was, there were, there were, like, limits. The Torah Shemichtav had a limit. And it was all of the things that the Torah Shemichtav meant. <coughs> it wasn't just the words of the Torah Shemichtav. But it was the meaning of the words of the Torah Shabbat. All of that could be contained. It was taught by Moshe Rabbeinu to B'nai Yisrael, and that was the end of it. So that was one uh, metaphor that is represented in the Mishkan. And the other metaphor is the light of the candles. And the light of the candles that were lit every night until the morning, you know, is totally different kind of light. 
I remember this discussed by Sicha of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. I, I can't remember what year. I don't remember what year. She says that in the Beit Hamikdash, when <coughs> Shlomo Amelach built the Beit Hamikdash, the windows were Shkufim Atumim. Shkufim Atumim are the windows of a Taggart fort of which there are many examples in northern Israel. None of them are so close to swimming, but uh, if you go up north in the Galil, you can find Taggart forts left over from the days of the Crusaders. A Taggart fort is, you recognize the windows are narrow on the inside and wide on the outside, like that. So that when you stood with your crossbow at the window, at the, uh, you know, attacking the uh, raiders or something, you were mostly protected because the other guy's arrows would probably hit the cement wall and you could see a lot and try to get the other guy. So that was how they built the target forts. According to the Rebbe, that was what Shkufim Asumim meant. That the windows of the Beit HaMikdash were Shkufim Asumim. So it's true that the light of the Beit HaMikdash did not light up anything there were no people learning Torah in the Mishkan or the Beit HaMikdash at night <coughs> but the, the implication was the implication was that the light of the Torah which was contained in the Aaron Kodesh could be spread throughout the world of, of the Jews and the Mitzvah says that that has to do with chidushin, with novelty, uh, novel notions that come to people who learn Torah. New ideas, new solutions, new ways of looking at things. <coughs> and even though, even though it is true that the candles were lit by, I mean, this is what the, the, the chief tries to prove, that even though the candles were lit by Aaron Akohen, they were really the result of the understanding of Moshe Rabbeinu. <coughs> so Moshe Rabbeinu, according to the chief, was responsible for both. He was responsible for the Torah that was in the Aaron Kodesh, that immutable Torah, the Torah that, that is the way it is, and that includes the Torah Shabal Peh, of how you read it and how you have the basic understanding on the one hand, and then the Torah of the light that just goes out forever to all the people and all the Jews that enables them and enables them to, uh, uh, to, to create, to be creative about the Torah, to be interesting about the Torah. I mean, you know, of course, these are bad words to use because they, <coughs> they have very different meanings. But generally speaking, Am Yisrael has managed to uh, assume this position of, on the one hand, constancy, right, with the tradition, with the way it always was, the way it was always understood. And on the other hand, novel ideas and, and new ways of, of understanding and directing. Of course, I, I, this doesn't mean that anybody who comes up with any idea is, 
it's part of this a process. But you've got to be very firmly rooted. That's what the Rambam says. The Rambam says it's not about Toshim Islam, but he said about Avayos, Avayavarovo, right? The Rambam says that if you want to learn philosophy, you better learn, better know a lot of Gemara first. That's what the Rambam says. He calls Gemara Havayot Avayavarovo. That's what it says in the Gemara. Right? The, all the cases that Avayavarovo had to deal with. So the Rambam, the Rambam felt strongly that you can ask every question and you can deal with every problem as long as you're securely rooted. You're not floating off sometimes. <coughs> the same thing is true about Talmud Torah as represented by the Mishkan. The oil that's used to light the menorah is to counteract, so to speak, the feeling that you might have that the Torah is fossilized, that it was written down and put into the Aram Kodesh, never to be taken out again, and never to be changed. Whereas the menorah comes to tell us, and that's why <coughs> it was important that after the Keglim were built in the parish of Truma, that the Torah tells us, don't worry. It's not that the Aron HaKodesh has ultimately, ultimate dominance over our lives, that we do the same thing as they did before us forever, but that the light of the menorah is really an extension of the Aron Kodesh, which is why it's not written down, as the Rabban points out, with the menorah. Because it's not just the way to light the menorah. That's what the Nitzvah tries to explain to us. That's just the way we light it. That you need oil and you need a wick. I mean, it's like not just that. It's that it's the other side of the enterprise, so to speak. And the other side of the of the enterprise demands uh, the ability to be novel in your thinking, to be original in the way you understand things. But of course, that only works if you're rooted in the Aron HaKodesh, if the Aron HaKodesh speaks to you as the, as the product of Moshe Rabbeinu's <coughs> Moshe Rabbeinu's teaching. Okay, have a good job. Why, why wasn't the menorah inside the Kodesh HaKodesh also then? I guess anything inside the Aron HaKodesh is stable. Everything is very stable. And uh, the menorah is not safe.